This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters with how-tos on habitat management and land investment. I'm Joe Baia, joined once again today with Clint Flowers. And Clint, uh, we're talking ducks. It's not really duck season, but we've got a special treat for you today. The entire show, we're going to be talking to the experts over at Ducks Unlimited and learning more about the vision for DU in its 83rd year and beyond. Today, we're talking to Adam Putnam, the new CEO of Ducks Unlimited. And a little later in the show, we'll be visiting again with Chief Scientist Dr. Tom Mormon. Tom's going to go over, uh, he's going to cover a little bit of wetlands mitigation, how landowners can get involved with Ducks Unlimited to simultaneously increase waterfowl habitat, but also increase some financial gain. So Adam, welcome to Huntland. We appreciate you joining us today and uh, congratulations on your new role with Ducks Unlimited. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be with Ducks Unlimited and I'm thrilled to be with you guys today and help spread the word on the importance of our mission. Well, tell everybody a little bit about your your background, you know, your history. Uh, I want to know your history with waterfowl growing up in Florida. Uh, Maybe you can give me some duck hunting spots, but tell us a little bit about your history with waterfowl and DU and uh, maybe a little backstory on how you came to be the head coach of, uh, I believe, the largest nonprofit organization in the world. Well, that's exactly right. uh, I'm a fifth generation Floridian, farmer and a rancher. We, We raise citrus and cattle here in central Florida, a little town called Bartow, just south of Lakeland, where uh, where the Detroit Tigers train and grew up in 4-H and FFA, grew up outdoors hunting and fishing, whether it was uh, catching bass in freshwater lakes or um, shooting ducks over phosphate pits nearby and uh, trying to call up an Osceola turkey. So I have loved being outdoors and, and hunting and fishing fresh in salt water. You know, Florida's not exactly in the center of a flyway. So the duck hunting stories that... Uh, my colleagues from Louisiana and Mississippi and up the Mississippi Flyway or the Central Valley, Chesapeake, they've got a little better duck stories than I have growing up. But, uh, but as you guys know, any excuse to be outside and watch the world wake up is, is pretty special. And that's really what the, you know, our mission since 1937 has been all about creating habitat, protecting habitat, conserving habitat where the ducks are, mostly in the duck factories of the U.S. and Canadian prairies and the boreal to uh, make sure that future generations of, of our kids and grandkids get the same or better opportunities to, uh, to waterfowl hunt and be outdoors and create the memories with their children that we've had. So it's just a huge honor and, and frankly, it's humbling to be a part of this organization that has such a tremendous history, such a great track record of protecting habitat, 14 million acres protected across North America. And the passionate, red-blooded, God-fearing members that we have that make up three-quarters of a million people uh, across this country who share that passion and implement that passion at 4,500 events across the country where we all pay more than we need to for a shotgun and buy fistfuls of raffle tickets knowing that we're doing a good thing to leave the world better than we found it. Well, I can tell you're fired up about it, and I would be too. It's a, it's a heck of an organization that's done a lot for, for waterfowl hunters over the years, and uh, I can tell you're excited about it. Well, tell us about your first month. So you started, what, April 1st? Uh, what you been doing for the last month? We're a pretty efficient organization. They made me start working a month before they started paying me, so I guess that's part of how we keep such a good efficiency. But it's just been fantastic. I've been dividing my time between our our headquarters, which are in Memphis, 
and traveling, getting out around the country, understanding the different flyways better, understanding the different projects that we're doing on the ground. So, you know, being a Florida guy, the uh, Pacific Flyway is a lot different than what we have. And, and to see the projects that we're doing in the Central Valley of California uh, is important because, you know, you have to understand what's going on out there to understand uh, the total mission. I've been up to our offices in the Great Lakes, uh, you know, right there in the, in, in the center of, of the flyway and, and look forward to being out in the Great Plains and the prairies later this summer to see the good work that's going out there in the prairie potholes. We just got to wait on some of that snow to melt off so that we can, uh, so that we can see some of the projects that are going on out there and, and get into the construction season. And of course, being in Memphis, you know, you're, you're right there in the heart of that uh, Mississippi alluvial Valley and can see what's going on across the river in Arkansas and down in Mississippi. And, and then, you know, our board meetings, we just spent a week in Washington because some of our best partners are, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture. And so meeting with uh, secretaries of agriculture and interior and strengthening that partnership and making sure they know that a lot of the, the funds that they partner with us are being used wisely and efficiently and frankly, a lot more effectively in many cases than if the government tried to do it all itself. So it's been a whirlwind uh, month and a half on the job. But the nice thing is every time I land in a different place, I'm meeting members who may have grown up shooting different species of ducks, maybe looking at a little bit different landscape when the sun rises. But man, their passion for waterfowl, for water, for wildlife habitat, it's the same in every corner of this country. And that's the big unifying force uh, behind our effectiveness as a conservation organization. That's really awesome to hear. I, I know I've been lucky enough to do a little bit of a little bit of hunting and traveling around the country. I know Clint has too. And you're exactly right about that. Everywhere I've been, you know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. It doesn't matter what uh, your upbringing was. If you're a hunter, you've got a common bond and you can sit around a campfire and have a drink and, and have a good conversation is, is something that uh, it's really neat to get out and, and see something that everybody's passionate about. You're talking about learning, you know, what DU is doing and, you know, around the country and, and getting more acquainted with it. Is there a learning curve coming from your past experience into your new role? Well, sure. There is a there's a heck of a learning curve because while our, our mission is, is simple and straightforward, the, uh, you know, accomplishing that mission is, is complex and geographically dispersed across North America. So understanding the biology, you know, understanding the engineering and the biology behind it and can't have a better supporter in that and better teacher and tutor and duck Jedi than our chief scientist, Tom Mormon and our chief conservation officer, Nick Wiley. So they guide me through the, the differences in how we uh, approach restoration and conservation in, in different areas of the country that I was less familiar with, frankly. And then, of course, you know, getting out there and uh, and getting more coal to throw into the, into the conservation furnace. So, you know, the, the aspects of our fundraising organization with the different events around the country and making sure that I'm present at those whenever I can be to, uh, to rally the volunteers and tell them how much we appreciate what they're doing and the work that they put in. None of our volunteers are compensated. None of our volunteers are even 
reimbursed for their expenses. This, this is the goodness of their heart. and They're donating their time, their talent, and their treasure. And so the conservation side, the science side of it, the po- public policy side of it, as we were neck deep in that uh, this week in Washington and thanking our partners in Capitol Hill and the administration, and then executing that, you know, working with our team, building our team, and making sure that, that we've got the right folks accomplishing this mission and that we're always doing it in an efficient way. Because we know that that every minute of time that someone gives us as a volunteer and every dime that they donate as a, as a contributor is special to them and they worked hard to get it. And there's a lot of other organizations that uh, would love to have their time and their treasure, but they've chosen us and we're never going to forget it. We're never going to take it for granted and we're going to work to earn it again next year. I was a committee member for years and years and I've kind of graduated to committee member and sponsor and now I've graduated to just a sponsor, but it was a lot of fun times and made a lot of great friends you know, volunteering there and we were all passionate about it. And they are fantastic events. I mean, I've, I've been to them across multiple states and they're, they're always a little different and they're always fun. Well, uh, they are. They've all got their own little flavor. You know, you got a little more boudin down in Louisiana and you might have a, you might be auctioning off an Osceola hunt in the Southeast, certainly in Florida. And you might be, uh, you know, someplace out in the plains, you might have an opportunity to bid to go up into Canada and to Saskatchewan or, Alberta and and uh, and you get a little different flavor for the culture. You get a little different flavor for what's on the menu and what the different auction items are. But at the root of it all are a bunch of good-hearted, rock-solid volunteers who are just making it happen and getting it done. And as a result, we've protected 14 million acres in North America since somebody a whole lot smarter than me came up with this concept in 1937. And speaking to that and the and the coal you mentioned. How did 2018 compare to 17 in terms of, you know, revenues or uh, acres conserved? How are we looking? You know, we're looking good. Uh, our revenue is holding steady. Our, uh, our event-based system continues to, uh, to be rock solid and, and strong, uh, which is saying a lot. You know, there's a lot of entertainment out there competing for people's dollars and time. There's a lot of other organizations out there competing. People are just seems like people are busier, but yet they make our banquets a priority. And so our membership uh, is showing uh, steady, you know, holding its own, not big, not, not big growth, like one, two percent, which is I, I view as being very positive, but certainly something we'd like to see uh, increase that growth percentage. Our revenue continues to be strong. We're looking for opportunities to continue to partner uh, and build on the solid foundation of those grassroots banquet events by bringing in corporate partners who share our vision and share our mission. And so we feel very good about that. But, you know, in, in this world where there's fewer and fewer people connected to the land, fewer people connected to that hunting experience, the fact that we are holding that membership number, you know, hovering right there at three quarters of a million members, I'm, I'm real proud of that. And while I'm, I'm not satisfied with that, I'm proud of the fact that a lot of other organizations are seeing their numbers decline and we're holding our own. Well, Adam, talk a little bit. You were talking about the, the events and I realize that's a big revenue generator for DU and the sponsors as well. You know, some of your corporate partners and that type of thing. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about uh, some of the different landowner programs and how those benefit DU, but also benefit the landowner. Give me a little idea of where the money comes from as far as, you know, a breakdown of where, where your revenue is, is the most important. 
uh, right now and maybe some places that people don't realize that they can get involved besides those events? You bet. So those events continue to be the really the foundation of our of our assets. We we have about 4,500 different events across the country every year put on by roughly 45,000 uh, volunteers. And that makes up over a fourth of our uh, overall revenue. And uh, the really cool thing about that is, as you guys know, having been on committees, you know, like down here in my little chapter at Bartow Mulberry chapter of Ducks Unlimited, we know that the bulk of that money is going to duck habitat, the breeding grounds in the duck factory, a long way from Central Florida. But we know it's the right thing to do. And that's always been a foundation of, of our mission that uh, we're going to make science-based decisions that are the right decisions for the ducks. And that, that continues to be our foundation. So that's over, over a quarter of our revenue. Our major sponsors uh, make up about 16% of our revenue. Those are major donors, corporate partnerships, uh, licensing deals that we have with companies, you know, good partners like Yeti and Drake. Those are generating about 3% of our revenue. I see there an opportunity there for us to, to, to build on that and strengthen that and grow that as a portion of it. And then our habitat. So that, that partnership with state governments, State Fish and Wildlife Commissions, folks like the Missouri Department of Conservation, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, uh, that has grown over time to become a significant portion of our revenue, uh, you know, in, in the 30s, depending on the year, depending on uh, state budgets and, and what the feds are doing. Uh, that has become significant part of our habitat delivery. And what that generally means is that uh, they put up money. We are the matching dollars for that. And then frequently there may even be a third partner so that that public money is actually leveraged two times, three times, maybe even four times to uh, really impact that habitat and stretch those dollars a lot further. Uh, NACA, which is the North American Waterfowl Conservation Act, we're celebrating its 30th year this year. That's a big driver in that habitat delivery. But increasingly, we're seeing states put more skin in the game as well. Uh, California's done it. Minnesota's done it. Many, many states uh, are now looking for like a P3 partnership in infrastructure. It's a public-private partnership. And uh, government's realizing that they don't have enough money to accomplish everything they want to accomplish. It'd be mighty hard for us to raffle off enough coolers and, uh, and shotguns to, to get all the money we need to protect the habitat to guarantee that bright future for waterfowl. But when we put our heads together and we put the two piggy banks together, we can stretch those dollars an awful lot further. And, uh, and, and there's a track record of success there for all of us to be proud of. That's great. If you had to put a percentage on how much of each dollar raised go towards the mission, what does that look like? Well, I can give you that to the penny because it's something that we stay very focused on. And we're very proud of the fact uh, that 83% of the monies that we raise is led on target. 83% of what we generate is going toward that mission. And that puts us not just in the upper echelon of conservation organizations, that puts us in the upper echelon of all nonprofits uh, in the country in terms of efficient use of your hard-earned dollars 
that you're willing to share with us because you believe in our mission and we're out there executing that mission, uh, meeting your desires, meeting your wishes. And, to, and, and squeezing that dime to get three nickels. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, I know that couldn't be possible without all y'all's, y'all's volunteers. And that's, uh, you got an army behind you. That's, that's really awesome to hear that that much of every dollar is going back into wetlands conservation and waterfowl. You know, you mentioned 14 million acres conserved. How, how many in 2018? What, what does that look like in a given year? And, and maybe some examples, you know, what are, what are some things that maybe y'all were, y'all were proud of in 2018? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you don't get to 14 million by just hitting home runs. It's singles and doubles, season in and season out. So, you know, we may be doing conservation activities in the Dakotas that are dozens of acres to protect a particular pothole, a wetland, a slough, uh, where those ducks are uh, are congregating. It may be something as large as the Rockefeller Wildlife Refuge down in Louisiana, which is a a 5,000-acre marsh that, again, we partnered with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, leveraging those dollars, stretching those dollars, modernizing their flood control systems to to create a better habitat situation for the waterfowl. And and it's a big project. It's 5,000 acres in size. There's a project in Missouri, the uh, Shell Osage project that's a partnership with the state department of conservation uh 4,000 acre uh marsh uh impoundment that uh, again we're we're engineering that marsh modernizing the water control structures installing non-waterfowl activity uh infrastructure as well in partnership with the state so that boaters kayakers canoeists bird watchers others can enjoy the wildlife including the waterfowl, but a broad array of wildlife that benefit from that marsh. And hopefully when we do that, we're making it clear that, number one, Ducks Unlimited, the benefits that we provide in conservation help more than hunters. They help more than ducks, more than just waterfowl. It's impacting wildlife. It's impacting water quality. And all of that means that it's impacting people. And as more and more people grow up without that outdoor or hunting experience, that becomes part of our conservation mission too, is to educate them on the importance of wetlands and marshes and and these habitats where uh, more than just ducks are living, water quality improvement is occurring, which impacts their quality of life and public health. And um, as you guys know, for the longevity of our mission, introducing new people to our sport is key introducing more people to a conservation ethic as they grow up and become voters and taxpayers and, and involved citizens is important. And telling that story that, that hunters are the best conservationists around and from the beginning have applied fees on themselves through duck stamps and hunting licenses and other things that go right back into the resource. And nobody's done more good for the environment than anglers and hunters in, in the United States. Yeah, I think it's important for people to understand that, that especially young people, that, that the word conservation does not mean fence it off and never go into it again. You know, there's a, a balance that we have that has to be found for us all to, you know, to keep this resource growing for us. But, you know, a lot of the value in it is, is its use. And there, there is a way to, to have both. I couldn't have said it better. You want to use it. You want them to experience it. You want them to fall in love with it but they have to have access to it. And if public monies are going to be used to do these things, then public activities ought to be allowed. And frequently, 
these things also require management. You know, you need you need to use prescribed fire in certain habitats. You need to have water control structures to maximize the benefits of water quality and and seasonal flooding so that the waterfowl can benefit the most from that and, and get the, the energy and the food that they need to make that long migration. You need to have public boat ramps and activities for people for a, ri- a wide array of, uh, of interest. But the bulk of that funding over the history of this country has come from hunters and fishermen. And that's a story that I don't think enough people understand. I agree with that totally. It also, it seems like in certain areas, in, in different mentalities is that, you know, we're often looked at as a, a not really participants in nature, you know, and I can get on a soapbox about that. But, you know, it's, lo- it's looked at as like nature's over here and the humans are over there. But in reality, you know, we're a part of nature. And when we manipulate it in certain ways for, for commerce and different things, it is our responsibility to manipulate it for the, the betterment of a wildlife habitat. And, you know, you guys do that on a, on a consistent basis. Uh, one of the things that you've got a lot of experience in, though, is what happens up on the hill. So, you know, in 2018, what accomplishments were achieved in Washington by Ducks Unlimited? Well, I'd say the biggest accomplishment that Congress and and our federal partners have have done is the passage of the Farm Bill last year, something that Ducks Unlimited played a leading role in on the conservation side, partnering with uh, the farming and ranching community. You know, most of this habitat is on private property. It's on farms and ranches. They do cohabitate well. Uh, You look at the wildlife that that live on ranches and and in these prairie potholes that uh, around those potholes is the the wheat, the corn, the soybeans, the rice that uh, that feeds this country and feeds the world. And so building those partnerships and making sure that, that there are not perverse incentives in one piece of legislation that result in undermining uh, the mission and the other. In other words, making sure that we're not undermining the conservation mission by encouraging, you know, just solid tillage and things like that, other production practices that are that are bad for the wildlife. And so that balance, I think, was struck and the incentives are, are aligned correctly in that farm bill to benefit our food security as a nation and benefit uh, wildlife and waterfowl uh, across this country. And that was a big win. That's a big deal that they reauthorize it every usually runs about every seven years that they are, are able to find consensus to get it done. It usually takes them a couple of years to, to pull it all together, aligning urban and rural interests, aligning the conservation, the uh, the commodities, all of the different interests that you can imagine exist in, in, in that crazy town. But uh, they were able to come together and, and really find that consensus in a way that we're very proud of and, and is good for our mission. And is uh, and is good for America's ability to uh, not be dependent on other, on other countries to feed ourselves. Well, Adam, you know what I want to know is: Do you have any specific goals for Ducks Unlimited? You know, do you see any any big changes uh, on the horizon for the organization? Well, let me just say this to begin with: I, Ducks Unlimited is a strong, energetic organization, and I am standing on the shoulders of the of the. The, the thousands of volunteers and the hundreds of thousands of members who've gone before me. I've been a member since I was 16, but there's a lot of folks uh, who make up the heart and soul of this organization, and I'm proud to be inheriting an organization that is very strong. But we, we can't 
just rest on our laurels. And so we hinted at it a little earlier in the program. I want to continue to diversify how we are able to generate the revenue that goes right back into the ground, right back into the mission, because even as good a job as we're doing, we're still losing ground on habitat. And as last year's duck season proved, you know, we were had that warmer winter and the ducks just didn't work their way south. And it was just a tough year for duck hunters. It's a powerful reminder that, uh, that there's still a lot of work to be done. So bringing in more business and corporate partners, looking for ways to continue to involve the next generation of uh, conservationists and, and waterfowl hunters. I'm thrilled with the, um, the program that we have that's called DU Varsity and, and Collegiate Ducks Unlimited, which are our college campus chapters and our high school chapters. That's a way of telling the conservation story, I think, in a, in a balanced outdoor experience way, and, and it generates members for life. Uh, it attracts members who maybe are interested in our mission but have never been duck hunting before. And this is an introduction to that uh, outdoor lifestyle and that activity for them. I, I was at the Ole Miss chapter banquet just a couple of weeks ago. And man, when you see the energy and the organization of, you know, of these 19, 20, 21-year-olds who are raising, you know, collectively, our collegiate chapters raised $2.5 million last year. So they're, they're just kicking butt and taking names. And it's the, the bench, you know, that's the farm team for the next generation of Ducks Unlimited members. So we want to build out that. And I would encourage your listeners that if you've got a college in your backyard or a high school that you'd be interested in adopting, start one of our high school chapters or collegiate chapters and help the kids get going. We would love to see that because that is our future. And so, you know, those are the types of things we have to be doing is uh, cultivating the next generation of members broadening our base of support and looking for new partners in, uh, in the state and uh, among local governments who are looking for that P3 partnership, that public-private public partnership to conserve habitat because nobody's got a better track record of, of getting the job done than Ducks Unlimited. I agree with you, and, and I've, it's one reason I've been a big supporter for so long, but what are some of the biggest threats, you know, in your opinion, facing waterfowl and waterfowl hunters right now? You know, the challenges are the challenges facing of the whole conservation community. Uh, you know, some people call it the last child in the woods syndrome. You know, you've just got so few people, so few families taking their kids outdoors, a generation of kids growing up addicted to screen time and a virtual reality when the actual reality it's so much more beautiful and so much more inspiring and so much more appealing to all of the senses, but they're missing out on that. And so uh, looking for ways to reconnect children and adults, frankly, to the outdoors and re reconnecting them to that outdoor experience is a big challenge. Obviously, the um, you know, coming on the heels of a pretty disappointing duck season from last season because of the weather and the fronts and the timing of the fronts and everything else, there's a lot of frustration out there. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an important reminder that it, that, that it, that it is called hunting, not shooting. And uh, there's going to be good duck years and bad duck years. But, but through the work of our conservation and our habitat delivery, we are protecting those breeding grounds across the plains and the Central Valley and the Mississippi Valley and the boreal forest of Canada to make sure that 
for perpetuity, uh, those nesting and breeding grounds will be protected. And so good seasons will come and go, but consistently we're going to make sure that there's habitat there to deliver the waterfowl population that, uh, that we want to see for this continent. Well, Adam, the work you guys do at Ducks Unlimited is extremely important for waterfowl. It's extremely important for waterfowl hunters. Uh, we really appreciate you being on today and, you know, giving us a, a rundown of what's going on at DU and uh, what your what your mission is uh, ahead of you. I know you got a big job ahead of you. We wish you the best of luck with it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again soon. And uh, just good luck, man. Uh, y'all keep doing y'all's thing and uh, we'll keep supporting you. Well, you keep doing your thing and, and spreading the word and getting getting the word out there for us and for all the conservation organizations who are doing so much good work. And uh, we'd invite your readers to check us out at ducks.org. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to be talking with Tom Mormon. He's the chief scientist at Ducks Unlimited. A little bit about how to conserve waterfowl habitat and make money in the process. Y'all stick around. Hey guys, we get a lot of landowners that want to know, how much is my land really worth? We've recorded a video series to explain exactly how we determine that. Just head over to landhunting.com go to get the series. I'm confident it will help you achieve your land goals. And we're back. Clay, it's good to hear from the new head of Ducks Unlimited and what is now their, uh, I believe, 83rd year, you know, where their, their chief mission is going to be conserving wetlands uh, for our waterfowl. And one of the ways that landowners can conserve wetlands and, and help to further that mission is through wetlands mitigation. Uh, Ducks Unlimited projects on private lands uh, provide all kinds of benefits to waterfowl, uh, but also they really benefit the landowner as well. There's a number of different ways uh, that landowners can benefit from that. They use got a team of biologists and engineers. Uh, they work on wetland restoration, uh, management, and different protection services directly related to landowners. And ultimately, what it results in is is conserving habitat for wildlife, but what I like to hear is financial gain to the landowner. So today we're going to be talking to Dr. Tom Mormon. Tom's been on the show with us before, normally telling us where those ducks are. Welcome back, Tom. Where are the ducks hey. right now? Well, we hope they're heading to the uh, breeding grounds on the prairies and boreal forest. Some of them are up there already and some of them are on the way. So they ought to be getting there and getting after it and getting the business done and making some more ducks. <laughs> Tom, Tom, the uh, the turkey seasons are, are in full swing in a lot of states, and they're just, just ending in some other states. And I know I, I'm a sucker for a goblin turkey, but I want to know, what's your favorite unique thing that, that waterfowl do uh, when they're breeding? Oh, man, that's a, that's a hard question. They do a lot of neat things. You know, most of the waterfowl are going to pair up here from late winter to spring. And once those pair bonds are formed, that male or drake duck defends the female and the space around her until they get to somewhere like the prairies. And then he starts to defend what is a territory that includes the feeding area. And the feeding area is really important to the female because that's where she's going to to eat, especially a lot of uh, invertebrates that help her with egg formation. Okay. And so in defending that, he ends up chasing off all other comers of the same species. And those flights, called three bird flights, usually another pair will come in and invade the territory. And that male will take off and chase them like, like he's on fire, trying to keep them out of there. And what that ends up doing, of course, is spreading pairs of ducks. 
say mallards, for example, all across the prairies and in all available habitat and maximizes waterfowl production. So it's kind of a cool behavioral adaptation they have. That is neat. We don't get to experience that down here, but I know a lot of the work you guys do up north of us is is integral in in being able to provide that. You know, one of the ways that you guys do that is through wetland mitigation. And so I want to talk with you a little bit more about that today. Clint and I get a lot of questions uh, on wetland mitigation. And so hopefully we can uh, answer some of those today. And, you know, the first one really I think we need to get, you know, go over is what exactly is a wetland mitigation bank? So tell, tell us a little bit about that and you know, how DU uh, works with those. So basically a wetland mitigation bank is after a lengthy process, uh, you know, a landowner, for example, pr- proposes a bank. He designs or works with, with somebody like Duxon Landman to design a wetland restoration. And I don't know, let's just say it's a 100-acre wetland. So he takes that plan to the Corps of Engineers and they get to approve or modify or deny the creation of the bank. Uh, if Assuming they approve the creation of the bank, then the owner of the bank, in this case, let's just say it's our landowner, then holds a certain number of credits and the Corps determines how many credits are available. And let's just say in 100 acres, he gets 100 credits to sell. And the credits are maybe worth, I don't know, let's just say $3,000 a credit. Um, Then he can go out uh, sort of on an open market basis and any entity that has to get a permit, say a developer wants to do a, a housing development and in the process of doing that, he has to destroy or drain five acres of wetland. Well, as a condition of, of him draining those wetlands, as a condition of the permit he will get from the Corps to do that, he will have to purchase wetland credits to offset that wetland loss. Typically, the Corps requires a developer like that to purchase three credits or three acres of wetland for every acre destroyed. Essentially, it's a three-to-one ratio. So in that case, if he destroyed five acres, he'd have to go out and find and purchase 15 credits and you can do the math but at three thousand dollars a pop pretty quickly you're forty five thousand dollars ahead in potential revenue now of course you got to pay for the cost of restoring the wetland you you have some upfront costs there but if you do your business plan right and price your credits uh, as the market will bear then there's a real revenue generating potential and is when when folks purchase those credits, Clint, you may know the answer to this. When purchase when folks purchase those credits, is it a one time purchase, just like they're buying a piece of land, or are they paying a certain amount over time, uh, where there's a payment to the landowner in in perpetuity or for a given amount of time? Now, typically, it's a one time purchase, and the bank holder is then obligated to maintain those wetlands for a length of time. And that is determined by the Corps engineers. It's usually pretty lengthy. Uh, there has to be a conservation servitude on it. In other words, an easement basically that ensures that the landowner or the holder of the bank will continue to manage those wetlands you know, for as long as the Corps deems necessary to fulfill the terms of mitigation. Are there any rules um, that you know of or, or restrictions that can you purchase those credits across state lines? So if I'm in, if I'm in Florida and I destroy wetlands, can I go into Alabama and purchase those wetlands? 
Yeah, I don't actually know the question specifically across state lines. I can tell you that usually as a condition of a permit, they will require you as the developer to purchase those credits as close to the development site or or the place where the wetlands were lost as you possibly can. Now, of course, there are limitations with that because banks are not always right next door, mitigation banks. And so sometimes even the core themselves has to move, for instance, across a state to to mitigate some of the damage they have to do in the process of doing flood control or something like that. So I think that's kind of a becomes clear as you get your development permit, how many credits and where and all those kinds of things are usually things that are negotiated and spelled out with the permitting authority, which is the Corps of Engineers. So Tom, if I'm a landowner and I'm interested in getting into mitigation banking field and uh, really want to explore opportunities there, you know, for multiple reasons, not only maybe an income stream, but also for creating and protecting a good waterfowl habitat on my property. What do I need to do or how do I explore that with DU? Uh, The first thing I'd tell folks is, number one, when you go into something like mitigation banking, it's an eyes wide open business. People are mostly in that business because it is profitable or can be very profitable. So as a landowner, you want to make sure first that you have a really good sense of a business plan to include all of your upfront costs and all those kinds of things, just to make, to assure yourself or in working with maybe a consultant that you have a financially viable plan to make sure this thing is going to do what you want it to do. Assuming you can do that and have that in your mind anyway, where you're comfortable with contemplating development of the bank, they could call Ducks Unlimited. Uh, All of our conservation work is actually done out of regional offices. And since your audience is mostly southeastern, I would suggest for Ducks Unlimited to call our southern regional office and speak to the director of that uh, office, whose name is Jerry Holden. Uh, He can be reached at the main line there, 601-956-1936. And what it'll probably do is direct you to one of his staff who handles mitigation banking for that region. A number of things can happen. uh, Our role in that, they could contract directly with Ducks Unlimited simply to come in and design and contract the restoration of the wetland. Uh, That's sort of a one-off, right? We go in, you hire us, we come in, we, our engineers survey it, design it, build it and turn it over to you and then the landowner and then the landowner has to do the management and marketing and selling of credits and all those kinds of things. Now, there are also opportunities for, you know, Ducks Unlimited to participate in the bank itself. And those range from, you know, what I just laid out to what I would say is sort of a joint venture or business venture. You know, a lot of people will think of Ducks Unlimited, well, they're a, they're a charitable, non-governmental organization, and that's true. However, we are allowed to make a profit on certain things, such as mitigation credits, but instead of doling that profit out to, say, shareholders, for example, we have to take it and drive it back into our wetland conservation mission. And so, in our case, wetland mitigation is one of many 
potential revenue sources that we use to conserve wetlands across North America. So a landowner would want to just call our regional office and speak with Jerry or a gentleman named Eric Held at that office as I sit here and think about who else does that down there. Uh, Eric could be reached at 601-206-5446. That's his direct line. He would be the one to talk about conceptually, you know, a landowner could call and say, here's my, here's my idea. Here's what I'd like to do relative to a mitigation bank. Can you guys help me? And then they can explore the various avenues and which we engage, whether, you know, it's just as a contractor basically or as a business partner. And we're able to do both and open to both. Uh, with some limitations on sites and those kinds of things, just because our geography of our regions limits our ability to reach out across too far away from some of our staff. Tom, do landowners that put their wetlands into a mitigation bank, do they still own that property? Sure. If, if an individual landowner retains ownership, uh, typically, what the Corps might require that landowner to do is put a conservation easement on it as part of the mitigation bank. Uh, that basically would just, the easement itself would simply require the landowner and ensure that it remains in wetlands for the length of the mitigation agreement. Um, that would mean that a landowner not only retains ownership, but with easement on it, he could also turn around and sell it if he felt like he wanted to or needed to. And then the easement on there ensures that the next landowner also has to retain the wetlands for the terms under the terms of the mitigation agreement. So I think I understand this now. You know, it seems pretty simple. A, a developer down in Destin, Florida, he builds a builds a apartment complex or a condo, and he has to destroy some wetlands. So he goes out and purchases some additional credits to to mitigate that he destroyed. And the landowner is able to generate uh, revenue from the sale of those credits. But what other ways can a landowner uh, utilize wetlands that he has on his property uh, and and Ducks Unlimited to to increase financial gain? Uh, There's some tax incentives, right? And some programs uh, where they could actually donate donate those wetlands is that right yeah uh in in certain areas certain landscapes that we would call priority landscapes we will accept donated conservation easements on important wetland habitats that are important to waterfowl and the way that works is again they would call our southern regional office and say i'm interested in your conservation easement program They'll speak to one of our staff, depending on where in the southeast they are. Could be over in Charleston, could be over in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Just depends where you are. But the discussion will basically be the same. We'll send a biologist out to do a, what we call preliminary property inspection. That's all just about making sure that the property itself is important to our mission. Then if it is, that biologist will recommend that we accept the easement. It goes through an internal process here. The terms of the easement are negotiated. And what I mean by that is, as a landowner, if you're donating an e- a conservation easement, you're going to give up some rights. Usually, it's like rights to subdivision, uh, rights to development, things that would impair it 
as waterfowl habitat. But they retain ownership. They can still use it for personal enjoyment, uh, for things like hunting. They can still manage manage and harvest timber under terms of an approved forest management plan. So they can do all of those things. And then they, the way it works is a, a professional appraiser comes. They appraise the property with the easement on it and without the easement on it. The difference in value, because it'll decline on a per acre basis with the easement, the value will decline a bit because, you know, there are restrictions on it now. That value is deductible from federal taxes. And I can't remember offhand, one of you may know, but it seems like it might be over about seven years or something like that. So there's a significant tax break through donating an easement to charitable organization like Ducks Unlimited or one of the many land trusts that are across the Southeast. Yeah, we actually did a show on conservation easements not too long ago. Clint, what was the deduction period? 15 years plus the year of the donation, so 16 total. Deduction can range anywhere from 50 to 100%. Most landowners who don't make all of uh, 50% or more of their income from that piece of property are going to be in that 50% range. But if you're a farmer, uh, who actively farms a property that is his business, you know, people like that qualify for a hundred percent deduction. Yeah. And your listeners should know that, you know, Ducks Unlimited is one entity that can accept easements, but there are quite a few land trusts out there. Some specifically folks focused on working agricultural land, you know, all kinds of them, some are small, And some of them, you know, you want to, again, it's an eyes wide open thing because some of those land trusts aren't as well managed as others. And so you want to investigate that pretty carefully because it's a long-term agreement, usually a perpetual easement. And so something you want to think hard about, but it definitely are some some financial advantages to it. Well, Tom, I know that there are certain types of wetlands that DU is most interested in protecting. Tell me a little bit about those and kind of the, the regions y'all really focus on and, and why. Sure. Look at North America uh, as a map, or at least if you're a waterfowl biologist, you can point to some pretty important landscapes across the continent. The Prairie Pothole region, uh, let's just say the lower Mississippi Valley from about uh, Cairo, Illinois down to, say, New Orleans. Uh, the mid and South Atlantic coast are important waterfowl areas of Central Valley, California. There are several, right? There are a bunch of them. So in those key landscapes, we are very active in the conservation approaches we apply really depend on what makes sense in that landscape. So in the South, in your part of the world here where your listeners are, in the South Atlantic and in the Mississippi Valley, we actually do accept a lot of conservation easements. Uh, We also do a lot of other work, a lot of wetland restoration. We work with the Department of Agriculture, Natural Resources Conservation Service to help them deliver uh, things like the Wetland Reserve Program, now called Wetland Reserve Enhancement Program, uh, where we might reforest a floodplain wetland or restore a seasonal, what we call emergent or moist soil wetlands. Uh, All those kinds of things come into play. And so those are some of our important geographies and the the conservation prescriptions and programs that we apply really vary with landscapes and are designed to basically ensure that waterfowl 
and landowners actually benefit uh, from the programs. Well, Tom, I know I've learned a lot today, and it it really is a neat program to be able to, you know, not only enhance waterfowl uh, habitat, but, but, you know, get some income off of that uh, while doing the same thing. I think everybody... I don't know. I don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy a good win-win situation. So it really sounds like that's, that's what that is. We always appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with us. We'll be looking forward to, uh, looking forward to the fall when those ducks turn around and hopefully, uh, sometime during the summer, we can get up with you and get a, get a nesting report, a hatching report. What, what do y'all monitor this, this time of year? And, you know, how do you make that assessment of how the, uh, the hatch conditions and, you know, really pan out? Yeah. So here in, uh, here real soon, actually, it won't be Ducks Unlimited so much as it will be the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who coordinates the breeding waterfowl surveys. And what they do and have since the late 1950s is they fly the same transects across the prairies, uh, the boreal forest, parts of Alaska, parts of uh, what we call the eastern uh, habitat assessment area over you know, in the northeast. They fly the same transects, and what they do as they're flying along at pretty low elevation, in a very standardized way, they count the number of waterfowl pairs they see, or waterfowl they see actually, uh, by species. And they also count the number of wetlands they see. And between the two, you can get a sense of what kind of year waterfowl production is going to have. If you find that, you know, over the relative to the long-term averages since the 50s, if wetland numbers are higher or very high and bird numbers are pretty solid, it looks like you'll probably have a pretty good production year. Alternatively, if you find the reverse of that, you can expect ducks to struggle and populations are going to decline a bit. Uh, you may or may not recall last year there were some slight declines in waterfowl numbers and wetland numbers. Things were still okay, but they were drying up. Uh, that trend this year, from what I'm hearing, is uh, variable. The Dakotas look pretty decent. But as you move north into, say, Saskatchewan, Alberta, things get a good bit drier. So it's going to be one of those years that probably a bit like last year where I won't be too surprised if there's a bit of a decline in wetlands and waterfowl populations, but there should still be a decent number of birds coming south. We needed some of that rain we had all fall and winter in the south to just uh, oh. move up north. <laughs> Man, we still got it down yeah. here. Ten- Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, the whole world's flooded still. I feel so bad for farmers right now, man. They are just, many of them are just underwater and they can't do a thing about it. And it's really yeah. awful. No, they're not worried uh, about ducks. That's for sure. It's uh, sure it'd be nice problems. if we could take that and put it up on the potholes, but that's not part of the game, man. Not part of it. Well, Tom, again, thanks for being on with us today. We really appreciate your your insight and your knowledge, and uh, good luck with the rest of the uh, the year over at Ducks Unlimited. And uh, just wish you guys uh, the best of luck with your mission. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity to chat, man. Anytime, Clint. One of the things I like about the land business in general, whether it's timberland or agricultural land, or, you know, there's so many different ways that you can generate revenue off your property. It's pretty neat. And I don't, for me, it's exciting to think that, you know, there can be a greater purpose behind 
trying to make some money and generate some revenue off your land. Seems like wetlands mitigation is a is a good way to to take something that most people look at as undesirable land uh, wetlands and do something great for the environment, do something great for wildlife and and other people to enjoy, and but also make some money in the process. What yeah. what else? What else is out there, man? I mean, besides wetland mitigation, what 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 are some of the things that you deal with a lot in your area? Most common examples I've seen are, you know, we've got farmers or, or farms that have an area that's, from a farming perspective, is non-productive or it floods a little bit and you know, high, high rainfall and things like that. So those going into WRP programs where the landowner is paid or there's some cost or opportunities to conserve that wetland, put in uh, waterfowl habitat, you know, they end up took a, what was considered a non-productive area and turn it to great duck hunting areas that they can enjoy themselves or lease out. Also conservation easement opportunities where people have donated all or parts of their track to a or land trust through the use of a conservation easement to protect those wetlands and that provide a significant tax deduction over time, but also a legacy track to leave to their family through the years. Yeah, I really enjoyed the show that we did episode 10. Uh, on conservation easements, you know, anytime you can put wildlife and and being able to generate some money uh, in the same sentence, I get I get excited, and that's good to hear. And then you know, you've you've dealt a lot with some of the other programs that um, actually can benefit landowners for planting uh, planting perennials, right? So I mean, some of those different programs uh, where if you're planting perennial uh, vegetation for wildlife, you can get some assistance with that as well. Yep, that was the conservation stewardship program, and there's also there's a lot of them out there. And thanks to the new farm bill and previous farm bills, they some of them have gotten rolled up in the last farm bill. But there's you know the WIP program, WHEP, and the EQIP program, which is EQIP. Uh, those are all programs that provide either income or cost share to landowners, you know, for activities that most of them either want to be or need to be or are going to be doing anyway. Uh, same thing goes for CRP, WRP, and and all the <laughs> all the fun programs and their nicknames. So, you know, if you're not familiar with those, I'd recommend that you get by your local USDA office and, and get up to speed on what, what opportunities may be there for you. That's exactly right. Well, that's going to wrap it up. And if you got questions on any of those programs, uh, how they can benefit you as a landowner or how they can benefit you as someone who's looking to purchase land, just email us your question at pros at landhunting.com be happy to answer them uh, may even turn into a future show we appreciate you listening y'all see us next week